Hello and welcome to another Medicine 360 podcast which celebrates where the practice of medicine meets the arts. It's hosted today in Bristol by me. I'm Ishminda Manga and I'm one of a team of people with an interest in the medical humanities. I'm a junior doctor in Bristol and I'm constantly struck by the insight that medical humanities provides into human conditions, illness and suffering and our perceptions of ourselves and others. To help us understand how we can practice more holistic medicine, I'd like to welcome our guest speaker, Caleb Parkin. Today we'll be discussing creative writing for therapeutic purposes. Caleb is the third Bristol City poet who won the second prize in the National Poetry Competition in 2016. He facilitates creative writing groups for therapeutic purposes and has worked with both young and elderly people, including those suffering with dementia. He's the former membership secretary for Lapidus, the Writing for Wellbeing Association. His writing grapples with the comic, the gothic, the scientific, the tragic and the transcendent. Caleb, you once said you hope to create spaces which give voice to our own kaleidoscope of experiences. Tell me, how does your work better enable us to understand the rich tapestry of human experience? Good morning. Um, yeah, how does my work enable us to understand? <laughs> well, I think there's, I, I tend to think of my practice um, in terms of writing and running groups as like wings on a bird. So they really, for me, um, the, the bird would fly very much in one direction or in a spiral uh, without both. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're a facilitator of groups, then having a writing practice is really vital. And so I definitely have a writing practice. And then that feeds into my hosting of groups. Uh, and the groups I run are with everyone from year two primary, as you mentioned, up to people with dementia, um, and lots of groups with young people and everyone in between. So um, my hope is through those practices, both of them, my own writing and facilitating practices, I can make spaces for people to um, express their experience of the world. And why do you think writing is important for wellbeing? Gosh, I mean, it's a, you know, a many, many faceted uh, response to that um, there's loads of ways that it's important for well-being sometimes I think we get a bit used to language as this thing that's just around and is just kind of utilitarian um, so we use it to uh, order things or you know write reports or whatever else but actually language is really quite magical and it's an incredible thing that human beings have and um, and other animals actually do communicate, of course, sometimes in quite complex ways. But uh, human beings obviously have taken that to some next level. So I think rediscovering language and rediscovering it as a a really broad and incredible, um, I don't like the word tool, uh, art form for expression is is really valuable for all of us. And that can be used in, in lots of different ways, depending on who you're working with and why you're working with a particular group. And what was it that initially led you to become interested in creative writing for therapeutic purposes? I guess for me, I always had a writing practice um, and I was writing from kind of school time and then started keeping notebooks. And then I worked in TV and radio and then moved away from that to work in teaching and um, in in PRUES, which is um, specialist provisions for young people with social, social behavioural, emotional difficulties um and then through that I started to bring the kind of writing practice and the teaching practice together seeing ways that I might work with young people with poetry with creative writing and then actually at that point I was living in Yorkshire and moved back to Bristol to start the MSc creative writing for therapeutic purposes and a different job in a people referral unit a specialist provision 
And so really started to think about how the two sat together. And I've, I've more and more moved those practices um, in alignment, really, over over the last 10 years, I guess. So you did your master's dissertation on creative writing for therapeutic purposes in museum and gallery context. Can you tell us a bit more about the key themes that your dissertation explored? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was initially thinking about a research project to do with um, with schools and then realised I didn't really want to explore that because it was not uh, not like a great experience. I think for lots of queer people, uh, school time is not always <laughs> in Section 28 era. So I thought, you know what, I want to do something else. <laughs> and then... Um, so I kind of thought I'm going to look at museum and gallery contexts because for me, they've always been a space that I felt like I could go to reflect and for some space and for some quiet and to engage with visual art and objects. Yeah, in a way that felt therapeutic. So I wanted to explore that. And I often go to museums and galleries with a notebook and I know lots of people do. So I actually I looked back at my kind of summary of the research project and I used um, poetic inquiry. So writing poems as a research process to think about objects and their influence on the practice and to think about how people are represented in museums and galleries too and also to think about close attention to specific objects and what that might uh, what benefit that might have to a CWTP practice and I also worked with the museum service in Bristol to do some um, participatory action research sessions where we talked about various themes to do with stuff like social capital and museums, uh, connecting personal, social and material narratives. Um, yeah, and some other aspects of their practice within the museum service too. It seems that visual stimuli then, Caleb, have been hugely evocative for your writing. How have the objects informed your work? And um, what do you think this means in a digital age? Yeah, for me, uh, I use, well, I used to use, I don't really use them at the moment, but I've got a huge selection of postcards of, of artworks and objects. Um, and I think that they can act as a kind of externalising device, these kind of objects, artworks to write about. These days, of course, we're working mostly with digital museum collections and that's got a whole different uh, take on, you know, like they're not material, are they? They're an image on a screen. So I ran a, a course recently with a poet called David Clark called The Halls Are Empty, Online Museums Poetry. And that was really interesting because we got to explore what it means to kind of write about museums in a, a digital age. And that's the way most people have been in, engaging with museum objects. And through that course, we thought about um, curating our own imaginary museums, like creating impossible museums of things you couldn't possibly curate. We did some work around decolonizing museum spaces and what that might mean through digital uh, collections as well. So it's a very, very rich area, even when you're working digitally, because these days you can access a museum anywhere in the world and look at their objects um, and put objects together in your own kind of imagined collections. So I think there's there's restrictions and possibilities, as there are with all these things. Perhaps we could take a moment now, Caleb, to hear one of your poems that's related to a piece of art or something you've seen in a museum. Would you please share something with our listeners today? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll read you a poem. Um, this poem won the Winchester Poetry Prize in 2017. And it was based on an encounter with a sculpture at the Tate Modern, um, which I encountered on a day when I was feeling quite vulnerable and feeling quite exposed to the world. I find London's a bit like that anyway for me. <laughs> it's a bit much. Um, and actually, 
<laughs> later on learned about this idea of being a highly sensitive person. Do you know that term? I don't. Could you perhaps please explain it? Yeah, well, I was when I was going to see a therapist through um, through my master's, you go and take part in a course of therapy as part of that so that, you know, um, the experience of being a client. And it's really and it was really valuable. And actually, my therapist said, you know, are you aware of an, what an HSP, a highly sensitive person is? And about 20 percent or so of people apparently fall into this category. Um, it's worth looking up and reading more about, but there is a sense of potential for overwhelm, so sensory stimulus, so transitions and change, things like this. And I think it can be seen as negative, but actually it can be a wonderful thing to be sensitive. And I realised she kept using this image of a, a kind of antenna, like if you're kind of a highly sensitive person, you have this big antenna that's up and you're picking up a lot of information. And when I wrote this poem, it was only after I wrote this poem, I realised that it was an image of an antenna for me. So this is called Somewhere to Keep the Rain, after Wen Ying Tsai Umbrella. Today, you wake and realise you have become a naked umbrella, a bat with only bones of splintering spaghetti, a silvery second loosed from a severed dandelion stretching from this instant quivering. You know these days. When you stand in the dark silo of your senses, pointing in more directions than the compass dares reach. When you branch out like coral yet to bleach, longing for the spores to flow out from this dark, the applause of rain on taut skin, but flinching at every drop. That was really beautiful, Caleb. Thank you for sharing that. Has there been a particular exhibition or a particular piece of art that has been meaningful for you in your work? Oh, loads. And I mean, you know, I find it so fascinating that you can kind of encounter an artwork. And even when you don't initially think that you're interested, <laughs> um, I think the writing process can lead you into your connection to that object. So I, I think I think that writing can build a deeper relationship with artworks and objects and also engage both your creative emotional and critical faculties all at once so I think it's quite an integrative practice um, so for me you know I've written pieces about all sorts of stuff um, but I suppose you know that umbrella sculpture felt like a particularly uh, poignant one for me or kind of I really felt connected to it and because every time you the way that it's installed when you make a sound the, the strobe lights in the installation in this silo that it was in would kind of quiver even more. So there's a sense of this really kind of fragile, delicate thing there that just felt completely perfect that day. And I think that can happen sometimes. Poetry and writing can make experiences accessible to us that would otherwise be alien and foreign, which can help foster a greater sense of empathy for others. One of your poems that's particularly stood out to me, Caleb, is Mother's Hands, which explores the impact of chemotherapy on a lady. Could you please read this very moving poem to us and explain what it was that prompted you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this came from a writing workshop where we were actually talking about smells um, and it has the smell of Vaseline intensive care hand cream, <laughs> which my mum uh, used uh, and still uses, I think. And my mum's unfortunately had to go through and is going through a couple of bouts of chemotherapy. Um, and she, you know, is incredibly brave and inspiring. And for me, writing has been one of the ways I've worked through that. 
uh, when I was doing my masters, I was writing about it sometimes. And sometimes you're not quite sure that a poem is going to come up about something. Uh, and this was one of the pieces I wrote about um, when she was having treatment for breast cancer and about the kind of the loss of hair, obviously, through chemotherapy. But as I say, it started through that um, through that smell prompt. So I'll read it for you now. Mother's hands. And this starts with a, an epigraph, a little quote from Vaseline.com. Moisture to heal dry skin. From therapeutic needs to your loved daily moisturiser, give your dry skin the long-lasting hydration it needs. Right. Her hands exude the hundred garden floral face slap of Vaseline intensive care. It fills the Renault estate, expands sickly right to the back of its family size boot. I hold my breath, but her hand wringing persists. She, ex she absorbs the scent of every one of its artificial petals as she speaks at the speed of the A12. Her hands gleam. The scent slick creeps up each of my nostrils until a mother's firm hand reaches from the driver's seat, offers a nosegay of Trebor extra strong mints. Left. A decade later, there's a digital image, recalled but deleted by a slippery click of my mouse. Her hands convey a Christmas pudding, face smiling, and eyes unlit. In that captured instant, the brandy fumes match the red of her hair, only it isn't her hair. After the chemo, intoning as slowly as land masses shrink or expand, she said the first time she shed tears was not for the hair on her head, but the loss of eyelashes, eyebrows, those ten unnoticed tufts on each digit of every hand. You've worked with patients, Caleb, who have dementia, and dementia can completely blur one's sense of identity and make them wholly dependent on others. And in many ways, the personal's illness narrative also becomes part of the story of several others. Can you comment a little on this? Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm not an expert on dementia. I've kind of um, run some sessions, uh, done my dementia friends training, which is very worth doing. Anyone listening, it's really helpful to understand a bit more about what dementia is and, and how to work with those with dementia. And I've also designed a resource with a group at the Bristol City Museum based around an artwork there, which was a really interesting process to think about how it could be accessed by people with dementia in a way that was safe and, and enjoyable. So I guess the memory cafes are um, partly that I do with um, literature works. Those are about hearing poems that the participants might have heard when they were younger, but also can be about enjoying just the musicality of the poems or their universality, which allows that connection about one's own story to kind of wider narratives. So there's partly that kind of reminiscence kind of stuff going on there, but also just the way that um, the music of poetry operates can be really enlivening and really enjoyable for people with dementia. I suppose there's two parts too. There's there's poetry in terms of hearing and listening to poetry, and then there's writing together. So usually in the memory cafes, we write a group poem. Um, and so there what I'll do is kind of 
field responses from the group and then I kind of write a poem live and there's something really engaging and enjoyable um, for a group about that is kind of seeing someone who works with words work with their words and create something together which I really love doing. I like the way that you're using your poems to draw on their collective experience and create something that they can very much relate to. I think connection with others can often be lost in people who suffer with dementia and trying to preserve this is of course exceptionally challenging. How does your work with dementia patients help them to maintain this sense of connection with others? Yeah I was thinking about the sessions I've run and particularly the creative cafes at the City Museum which were really lovely and we got to do some work um, kind of ekphrastic work and ekphrastic poetry is um, poetry inspired by artworks. And I was remembering this moment going around one of the galleries where one of one of the elders in the group who was in a wheelchair and had his carer, who I think was a relative, and she was pushing him round. And um, we saw we looked at this this painting of the sea that they have in the City Museum and Art Gallery, um, and it's called Eternity. And there's something about it being the sea and eternity. And uh, and this relative carer said to him, "You know, would you like to live for eternity?" And he just looked around slightly and went, "I think I already have." <laughs> And um, and I just thought, and it, for some reason, it just really stood out as this moment of like humour and playfulness and acknowledgement of kind of change and mortality and all of these things. So I guess like for me, working in those settings is really powerful in that regard because you get to connect to each other through your responses to the artworks um, and you get to connect to artworks and try something new. And I think that's really therapeutic. And then memory cafe wise again I think it's this sense of kind of really having shared something having shared hearing poems and having shared creating a poem together that can be really really powerful I think um and and a few memories come back about those sessions where you've got to allow space both for the joy and the enjoyment and also that sometimes it can be quite sad for an elder with dementia um to recognize something they might have lost um, and there's there have been some really poignant moments where you just have to sit with whatever comes up including sadness or some pain um, of those moments of lucidity that people with dementia can have that remind them perhaps of you know how kind of adrift they can feel but for me there's a there's a practice there I don't know if you've ever heard about this of working with kind of improvisation techniques where you sort of say yes to whatever arises um, and that's been really helpful for me is to think unless it's seriously problematic or dangerous to say yes then you just say yes to whatever comes up and you have to say yes to sadness um, or to pain as well as to joy. So I know people with dementia very sadly often find themselves robbed of the ability to express their feelings and emotions. Do you have any insights to share about facilitating the emergence of these important narratives and are there any other techniques apart from improvisation that help you do this? I think all group practice is a kind of mixture of really careful planning and improvisation and sometimes like having a, a kind of structure from which you can uh, deviate as you need to really. So, you know, I kind of do like the word tools, but I also think sometimes we're kind of utilitarian about language and about um, the magic of it. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixture. So for me in, in a session, I use kind of colour and like external stimulus. So we had like um, paint colour cards that I really love. Um, they're more difficult to use digitally again. But we had all kinds of objects, materials and fabric that are really sensory as well. And then you can ask people to say, you know, how do you feel today? You, which fabric are you? Which colour are you? 
and then some fridge poetry words that we used and we made little assemblages of those things so there's no pressure then to like there's an empty page and you've got to write things you know for some elders with dementia they might not be able to write as well so actually choosing and selecting is really powerful or curating if you want to use that term it's a bit overused now but I think that can be really powerful um also things like sentence stems which are really helpful just to get people started so I'm always thinking about what what helpful containers I can offer any group that will both um, kind of give them some shape and also liberate them to express themselves, really. And Caleb, from the work that you've done with, say, patients who have dementia and young people, do you think that access to creative writing for therapeutic purposes should be offered by the NHS as part of a more holistic approach to healthcare? perhaps for certain conditions? I guess my understanding is that actually sustainable outcomes from things like Writing for Wellbeing, CWTP, are relatively good value. uh, And there's an increasing evidence base for that. But I feel like, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like there's quite a resistance to arts-based, arts-oriented practices. Um, They're seen as kind of fluffy or that they, you know, they're not like, they're not medical enough in some way. And so I did have a look at the I mean there's an increasing evidence base as well of the ways that writing for well-being CWTP can work with different audiences or client groups I did have a look on my master's course website and there's all kinds of different potential groups um to be worked with there and I do think it's a very flexible tool there's that word again um for all kinds of different groups you know for me I work with young people quite a lot and I think CWTP is brilliant there but I also work with year two primary kids, you know, and I can see the well-being facets there of the work I'm doing. So, yeah, I think it would be great if there was an increased access through the NHS. Um, and I wonder where the resistance comes from to offering out more of that. Just to mention as well that um, the Arts Council won't fund anything that mentions well-being uh, or like therapeutic, which is interesting because it's sort of deemed anathema to it being an art form. And I do wonder if some of the kind of binary or um, the ideas of these kind of schisms are really unhelpful and actually get in the way of there being even more good practice. That's a really interesting point you've raised. And I think actually a lot of the resistance comes from the fact that it's very difficult to measure the qualitative effect of something because this isn't a quantitative process. And I think that that's where a lot of the obstacles come in in terms of people then accepting these practices. Yes, I think it's, it's so interesting that quantitative qualitative stuff because yeah of course you know by its nature creative writing is kind of qualitative you know we're thinking about the experience of and the texture of and the detail of but of course that's you know for me that is also life um, and also there are kind of quantitative measures you can get in terms of people self-reporting, you know, on the kind of, there's various of these, but even those seem not to be particularly taken seriously, uh, you know, like scaled outcomes and things like that. So I wonder what kind of quantitative um, data would be needed for like the NHS or the wider kind of health community to take writing a bit more seriously, I guess. Yeah, and I definitely think that there's a need for a shift in that more conservative attitude towards it. With the workshops that you've done with young people, I know that you've said before that you feel very strongly that young people, and indeed all human beings, have a voice and a right to be heard. How do you nurture these young voices? Well, I've worked with um, First Story quite a bit. I did various residencies with them. I work with a project called um, Beyond Words with Cheltenham Festivals. 
um, and I've also tutored with Poetry Society and ad hoc school sessions here and there as well. And I think you can make a space where young people feel heard. Um, and, and this is very much first stories um, philosophy, that the details of our lives are valued and they are significant. There's uh, writers like Natalie Goldberg, who really has a lot to say about detail and specifics. For me as well, I think there's a kind of low floor, high ceiling approach. So I mentioned earlier, finding the right containers for people's voices. And I don't see containers as something that should sort of enclose people. But something that should be liberating. I sort of talk about um, climbing frames rather than cages. I feel like a poem that you offer as a, a, a sort of base for an activity needs to be a climbing frame rather than something that really kind of cages people in. For me as well, there's kind of some teaching skills that are really useful, things like differentiation. So sometimes putting a number on things saying, you know what, like try and write five lines and then everyone's achieved it. And then that means that actually those young people who might have less confidence at writing or might be quite vulnerable that they've accessed the activity and that they're going to keep trying whereas actually if you put something on that's too challenging then they're not going to so i think being really mindful of that you can have very very variable um levels of language and engagement and of course young people who've got english as an additional language so those skills are really useful i think and they're quite practical and my other key thing is working alliances rather than rules. Or actually, I use manifestos. Young people respond so well to making a manifesto. Whereas if you go in as a you know a perceived figure of authority and you say, right, here are my ground rules. Young people hate, I hate that. I don't know about you, but I find I go, if someone's like, these are my ground rules, I'll be like, right. And it makes me want to be naughty. So I, I use manifestos. We come up with them as a group. And then actually when when during the session, you can depersonalize. You can say, hey, do you remember when we made a manifesto? I just wonder if we need to look at that again. Is there anything we need to add? And by doing that, you can avoid embarrassing young people because young people are very prone to that. You know, you'll know this. The kind of social brain of a teenager is quite different to when you're a, a fully developed adult. And you need to be mindful of that because it can be really unkind to point out behavior. Um, when actually sometimes what they're seeking is a connection or, yes, some attention. Uh, and I hate the expression attention seeker. It's one of my most loathed things in working with young people. You know, if a young person is acting out, maybe they do need some attention. And, and what might that be? You know, so, um, yeah, those are some of my big things. And what other things has your work with young people taught you? And has it made you reflect on anything about yourself? Yeah, I think I think just going in open to and actually hoping to be surprised by young people especially some of the ones where you go in and they'll be hiding behind you know well hopefully not a phone in schools but sometimes it is or be very resistant to engaging or connecting and then actually it takes some time and you know you have to kind of build up that relationship um a teacher of mine actually said with young people the three things that are most important are to be yourself like and genuinely yourself uh, make them laugh and um, like them genuinely, uh, even the really difficult ones, perhaps especially them. And I think those are three really good pieces of advice. Um, for me, when I was teaching in a mainstream school, it was quite hard to be myself because actually, and this is something I've learned as well, uh, growing up in this sort of in Section 28 era of censorship in school as a queer practitioner myself, and then actually when I was going to schools and they were having like a pride event or there was like an LGBT society and I realised how difficult it had been um, as a gay young person who was struggling with that, that um, 
there was just no representation when I was at school. So I've been doing various bits of work, which I've, I've found quite reparative. So I've made an LGBT creative writing resource for First Story, uh, done some sessions called Reclaiming the Rainbow, which are kind of LGBT History Month sessions. And actually, that's been really important for me to realise that the confusion I experienced at that age at school doesn't always need to be the case. And I can do some work to make sure it isn't for young people again. That Those projects all sound really amazing, Caleb. And I'm sure that it must have helped young people today tremendously to know that there is that kind of resource out there. Yeah, I hope so. And I think for other writers, what we realised with First Story, it wasn't only for young people, for LGBT plus young people. It's also for LGBT practitioners, because lots of us, you know, I'm 37, and lots of us grew up in that era of censorship or before that, when you know there was a period in the 70s where maybe things were a bit more open. But prior to that, of course, lots of... Um, Lots of practitioners would have been through a, a you know a stage of schooling where it was really um, punished to be LGBT. So I think, yeah, that's been a really interesting process. And I hope that for both writers in schools and for the young people they work with, that that's a really useful resource. We called it a guide for inclusive and celebratory writing. So we don't just want it to be about like, oh, don't say gay, which is what I heard in one school I went to. <laughs> I don't want to be on a list of banned words. Do you know what I mean? That was what it felt like. And I thought, okay, we need to do something that's really affirmative and that's really connective here. So I hope that that resource works in that way. I don't know if this perhaps comes into and links to what you've just been saying, but I know that you believe that writing can be gardening as well as weeding. What do you mean by this? Yeah, I think that image of gardening rather than weeding, I and mean, if we can imagine, like, imagine a sort of a front garden which has been completely taken over by nature, which is actually kind of wonderful, but not necessarily if you want to use it as a garden. Um, so I think that writing as a practice, so something that you kind of have to go back to and that you know that you can kind of take to your notebook and work through things, figure things out, and that that can be gardening rather than weeding. So you're keeping the garden nice rather than having to, um, you know, like go in with a strimmer and a machete to try and sort things out later, which, of course, you can with writing as well. And there's lots of uh, I don't know if you know, James Pennebaker did quite a lot of work about expressive writing. So just really kind of letting all that stuff go and like free writing. But I also think for me, it's a way of maintaining my mental health, which is something that I'm I'm conscious of. Um, it's fairly it's pretty good. It's pretty stable, I guess. Um, but I'm conscious of it as something that I do need to maintain. So that's what I mean by gardening. And you said before, Caleb, that writing should make language once again peculiar and special and help us treasure the magic of language. Tell us a bit more about the inherent magic in language and how you think it can be captured. I was just reminded of um, something I discovered with much joy during my master's, but the, the word um, grammar comes from grammare, which is book of spells. Um, so there's a kind of inherent magic in the way that we use language. And of course, we still look to poetry for um, births, for weddings, for funerals, for times of national stress or trauma. Poetry is where we go. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, so I guess it's this kind of thing I mentioned earlier about utilitarianism um, versus kind of words as an art form. And so sometimes in my sessions, what I'm doing is helping people to reclaim language, not just as something that you fill in forms or, you know, like have a chat with or send a work email, but to kind of rediscover it and play with it again. And I think play is a very important aspect of my sessions and my practice as well. 
What was I going to say? I had another thought then. I can't remember where it's gone. Yes, I was going to say as well, read that kind of utilitarianism. I've been working on a Zoom group with a group of migrants and refugees. And one thing we did there was to respond to the visa application immigration form um, questions. And I remade that form. And then we were able to, and the group were able to respond to those questions honestly, rather than within the confines of what was expected to be said in that form, which is incredibly confusing and hostile. Um, and for me, that was another kind of kind of form of magic, a form of political magic and power, like finding some power in language and being able to speak honestly rather than speaking in the way that um, that context expects you to. I think we get locked in scripts and I think we can be freed up from those scripts, including the scripts of self-talk and what we think of ourselves or how we see ourselves. So for me, that's part of the magic as well, is to kind of shift the script and like freshen up what we're doing and be able to improvise and play again with our words. I'm acutely aware, Caleb, that you're a very busy man and I'm conscious of not wanting to take up too much of your time. I wonder if you could please end this podcast with one final poetry reading. Yeah, sure. I'm very happy to. Now, I'm going to give a content warning here, if that's right, because it starts with quite a bold opening line. Is that all right? Absolutely. Cool. It is. And why I thought I would share this one is because it's about engagement with a medical practitioner. Um, so I thought it might speak to your listeners um, in terms of the ways that if you're a queer patient and you go and talk to a doctor who maybe isn't LGBT plus or hasn't you know thought much about talking to LGBT plus people um there can be some kind of unfortunate moments of communication <laughs> uh, and anyway I wrote this piece it was published in a journal called Butcher's Dog and it's quite a short and um precise poem it also in, involves a painting by the way so there's a painting on the wall and as you probably know lots of the the artwork in um, in medical settings can be quite sort of bland or uh, <laughs> uh, it, I guess not all of it but sometimes it can be the painted gate anal sex he says is inherently traumatic then i say and he parrots physiologically as I fiddle with the silver ring on my finger, pick at the chair's 1970s stitching. Picture us from above. Notice on these regulation green walls a single painting, a garden gate subsumed by foliage. Observe the bristle of its thorns, the bright red syllables among its roses it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today Caleb. thank you very much for joining us i'm very much looking forward to reading your debut collection this fruiting body that's due to be released next october and also um my debut pamphlet is out in february called uh, wasted rainbow which will have quite a lot of the work around section 28 type writing in there so very much looking forward to that and we should all keep our eyes peeled for it i will do much social media hurrahing about that so if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at caleb parkin thank you thank you for listening to the fifth of these medicine 360 podcasts caleb pointed to a lot of really interesting resources during our talk and we'll be providing links to as many as we can alongside the podcast and if you'd like to learn more about medicine and the humanities, please visit medicine360.co.uk. From the team here, we wish you all the best until next time. Mm-hmm.